But I think there should be an ethical duty before a client signs a full service legal services contract that the lawyer disclose and inform of the availability of an unbundled stability and option. That lawyer may not offer it, but then the lawyer has the duty to say that the unbundled services exist and to make reasonable uh, recommendations. Season two of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall. I'm the project coordinator at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project at Windsor Law School. And I'm Julie McFarlane, the director of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project at Windsor Law. And it's good to be back. It's so good to be back. We've taken, you know, a bit of a, a bit of a breather here, and hopefully you all missed us. For our first episode back, we've got a really interesting conversation with someone who is often referred to as the grandfather of unbundled legal services, Woody Mostyn. Woody Mostyn, or Forrest Mostyn, uh, is someone that I have had the pleasure to know for, I just did the math, over 30 years. That's a bit scary. Uh, I met Woody originally when I was still a doctoral student, studying the ways in which we could provide law students with practical, clinical, legal skills. And he's been very involved in that as a trainer, principally as a mediator, as well as as a lawyer for many, many years. But Woody is also the person who first came up with the idea of unbundled legal services, as he describes in my conversation with him in the early 1990s. And I do very much remember him being treated as a complete lunatic at the time. <laughs> and, you know, that's something that I can relate to. <laughs> so let's listen to the conversation, which has lots to say about the contemporary state of unbundled legal services here in Canada also. Hello, Julie. Hi. Thank you for taking this and delighted to talk to you in sunny California. Is it beautiful this morning? More beautiful than you will ever know. What is oh. it over there? Yeah, 18 degrees in winter? Mm, mm, something like that, yes. It's miserable. Okay. So, Woody, I know that you have been working for many decades on the idea of unbundled legal services, uh, and it occurred to me when I was thinking about the questions I wanted to ask you today, especially in the wake of the recent publication of your new book, what it must feel like for you to have spanned all these decades in which we've seen this idea go from something that my memory is everyone thought was completely crazy uh, 30 years ago, and now we're seeing finally a real surge in support for unbundled legal services. And this is in very large part due to your work. Can you tell me a little bit about how you first came up with the idea of unbundled legal services. And what were those early years like trying to persuade lawyers to think about this? Well, thank you, Julie, and you're right. It is very gratifying, particularly when I went to the second annual conference on unbundling in Denver past October and saw so many young people, people in the next 
two generations who really are working to meet the legal access gap and who are dedicating their lives and careers to this. It, it yes. means a lot to me. We have a lot of work to do, as I, we'll discuss. But let's go back, I guess, a little in time, um, which uh, seems like yesterday. And it started, frankly, when I was a governmental uh, lawyer for the Federal Trade Commission. You may not even know this about I don't know this about you. Yeah, yeah I was um, Assistant Regional Director for Consumer Affairs at the Federal Trade Commission Regional Office in Los Angeles. And my job was to supervise lawyers in their investigation. Right. And one of the investigations that I supervised was that of the real estate industry. And the focus of that investigation was the harassment of real estate brokers who would work with the do-it-yourself sellers of, uh-huh. of residential homes. Now, at the, in that time, as now, there are little companies that can sell a package for $500 or $600, and um, it has flags, and it has signs, and it has all the directions for right. selling your own house. Right, the DIY the kit. Thing, that's right. But to get on a multiple listing service, one needed to be a broker. Now, brokers in in those days, as now, work on a percentage of the purchase price. But the other part is that there were entrepreneurial uh, real estate brokers who would say, okay, I'm not going to ask for 6% for you DIY person. What I'll do is I'll charge you $500 to get you on the multiple listing service. The other brokers went so crazy they started <laughs> to expel to expel these brokers from their real estate associations and multiple listing services that was in 1978 and 1979 in 1979 i left the federal trade commission and went into practice and for the next 10 or 11 years you kind of know what i did i was a mediator I remember it. One of the findings was the finding that these self-represented litigants could find their way into the courthouse, but they didn't find their way through it very well, and yeah. they, they found that their lives were not did not go well. They had to live with no orders or old orders. They got no tax advice. They often sacrificed major rights, and the most important thing from my viewing maybe is that 
their family dynamics never improved. There was no one to actually refer them to counselors, mediators, other professionals that could actually help the dynamics of a separated family. Well, they're just trying to cope with the legal process, That's so right. everything else is second place. So I was sitting in this committee meeting, and finding was, if they just had a little bit of legal help, they would do better. Yes. So I'm sitting there, and I think we're on dessert at lunch. All of a sudden, I said, why don't they unbundle? Because that's what these real estate brokers did. They unbundled. And I said, why don't these lawyers unbundle? And people looked at me like I was down. What do you mean, unbundle? And I said, well, look, what if they just gave part of the work and charge for part of the work? These self-represented people would do a lot better. Well, it didn't make the day on that first discussion. But over months, <laughs> yeah. over months, this committee, which is very, was very dedicated, and one of the interesting things, since that day, 1991, till now, now we're talking over 27 years, the main yeah. mission of that committee has been to promote unbundling. Now, one of the things that I'm sure you heard right away in 1991, and in fact we still hear about from the bar, is their concern about offering unbundling or limited scope services that it will expose them to lawsuits for malpractice and also to disciplinary complaints. Now, we know that there is no empirical evidence for this. In fact, it looks as if based on the work that we have so far, and it's, it's limited, but it's starting, the data seems to suggest that unbundling results in fewer complaints because, in fact, the customers are more satisfied and, and also easier billings for lawyers. But it is a persistent query. And, and to me, it seems like it symbolizes some of the kind of underlying resistance, some of what you were seeing among real estate agents to change. And I wonder what you say today to lawyers who I'm sure still sometimes raise this concern with you about uh, exposure to liability. And, and why do you think it's so hard to put this one to rest? Well, it, the cynicism and the fear uh, of the legal profession and its desire to basically remain status quo uh, runs very deep, as yeah. you and I both know. And so if you have two choices, improve it or keep it the same, the uh, keep it the same has seen as less risk. Um, yeah. Now, the real truth is that we are a monopoly. We have a state uh, license in order to be the only ones to charge for legal services, mm. and that's based on our duty to the public. And so we have to look, as you have in all of your research and your writings, to what do people need. And your point needs to be underlined a few times. One, treat the public like consumers, like with informed consent, with savvy consumer-oriented products. And number two, when they are happy and satisfied, they are less likely to uh, sue, and that that has been replicated in every study, um, yes. not just in law, but in medicine, counting everywhere. If you ever want absolute proof for that, look at the insurance companies. Mm. They are pretty smart. They they've been behind this right from the very beginning. 
Absolutely. I remember in 1997, Lawyers Mutual, which is the one of the largest insurance companies in California, not only encourages lawyers to unbundle, it teaches them how to do mm. it even better. So I, w- I want to talk to you a little bit, Woody, about some of the work that we've done in the last few years at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project on coaching, because this is something that, as you know, came directly out of my research with self-reps, and you and I have talked about this a lot already. And in a way, I kind of see this as you know, a subset of unbundling, or if you like the kind of another derivation, a contemporary derivation of unbundling, where instead of giving the lawyer a job, which they will discreetly manage and the client will then pay for, this is much more of a collaborative process between lawyer and client. And it's what we hear all the time from self-represented litigants. I want to have a go at drafting my documents, and then I want the lawyer to look at them with me. Or... I want to go to a lawyer and have them rehearse what I'm going to say in court. I can't afford them to come with me, but I would like them to coach me. So how do you see coaching and unbundling complementing one another? From the beginning, instead of getting on the the field, the uh, lawyer uh, basically has a clipboard and a whistle (laughs) and a coach. Yes. And, and can and can can map plays for the players who do their own playing, and that is what started with unbundling. Yeah. Um, and it was partly as and, and this comes out of your research, which replicated earlier research as well. That number one, people unbundle because they can't afford a lawyer, but yeah. second, they unbundle because they want control. And they yes. don't necessarily want the kind of lawyering that they would otherwise get. So unbundling is more than just lower fees. Yes. I think it's the essence of it is giving empowerment to mm. people, which which the coaching model does even better. There are so many other roles, and your coaching model is a perfect one. I believe the coaching model and in mediation makes it even more important where it's an unbundled role where someone might not mediate if they don't have the help of a lawyer. I I completely agree. And we saw that in the studies that people just felt really unprepared to go into mediation unless they actually had some coaching. And it could be from a lawyer or it could be from a mediator or someone who is an experienced conflict coach, as we mentioned earlier. But, But here's the other question that I think is really on people's minds now, Woody, as we see unbundling kind of crossing the credibility threshold finally. You're no longer seen as a complete lunatic. And um, I don't think I am either. But here's the next question. You know, one of the things that we're starting to get pushback from people about is that they'll go to an unbundling lawyer or coaching lawyer from, for example, our national directory, which we've set up, and they find that they're charging an hourly rate of 400 to 500 dollars an hour, which is, of course, not unusual. And they charge this rate when they unbundle, just as they would do when they offer full representation. Now, I understand that this is logical from the lawyer's point of view. They're still selling their time. But it's really hard to persuade a member of the public 
who's considering buying some limited legal assistance, just like it might be that person back in the old days buying the DIY estate agent kit, that $500 an hour is a reasonable rate for anything. So do you have an opinion about how we might bridge this gap between what the public may be willing to pay for unbundling services and what lawyers are accustomed to charging? Well, first of all, I believe it is market-driven. And while lawyers, and I must also, I also must admit, if I charge high fees when I unbundle, because my right. clients can afford it. But there are many clients who can't afford it, so I move it down the food chain. Right, and so it's now, not always the, the same amount. There's a, a company now called Unbundled Law. You may have heard of them. They're, they're nationwide now. They have lawyers that essentially pay for leads. I can't say that their quality is necessarily to the level I would like to see it yet, but, and their motives are purely financial, but their fees are much lower. And so they're providing that, lawyers who will, who will unbundle at a, at a lower rate. Is that what they offer? Yeah. Right. Yeah. We, we, will look, we will look for them and put this on, on the podcast webpage when, when the podcast goes up. I think part of unbundling has always been a market-driven movement that the retainer, the deposit, the high fees, and the full service are market barriers to legal access. Yes. So what we wanted to do was bring in an unbundled um, opportunity for people to lower their fees. Now, and I think you are right, that many um, experienced lawyers charge the same, and I don't believe they should charge less, actually. I, I mean, my view is it is very important work, and it's very hard work, and that for people who want that experience and can pay for it, great. But for those who can't, there is a tremendous opportunity that we, we have incubators and we have lawyers who, uh, who are less experienced but can be trained who can offer these services at a fraction and can do a very, very good job. I just think we need to look at the whole marketplace and um, calibrate it a little better. So what about the idea, for example, of somebody going into a lawyer's office and asking for particular kinds of services, and we're actually working at the project at the moment on trying to empower people to go in with a good idea of what they might want to ask for and exactly what kind of assistance they might need and be willing to pay for. What do you think about people negotiating? Oh, I love it. In fact, what you're doing is the critical part the critical half of what I've always been talking about. Yours is empower and educate the public to request and demand a, a menu, an a la carte menu yes. of, unbund of services, full service and unbundled. Now, I have also, but I've been stressing the other half, and that is, and, and, and I can feel my, my lawyer friends cringing what I'm about to say, but I think there should be an ethical duty before a client signs a full service legal services contract that the lawyer disclose and inform of the availability of an unbundled stability and option. Now, that lawyer may not offer it, 
But then the lawyer has the duty to say that the, the, these unbundled services exist. They're available. To make, and to make reasonable uh, recommendations. It is not so crazy. Uh, and I think that in my classes, I've been, I, I have a, a very old PowerPoint that has survived, I think, eight updates where I said there should be an ethical duty to uh, disclose the option of unbundling. By the way, I've got no traction yet, but that doesn't mean it won't happen. They're still saying I'm crazy. Well, you know, you have survived a number of periods, <laughs> I know, Woody, and this is something that you and I have in common, I think, where most of the people around you have thought you were crazy. And, and this is sort of where I want to end our, our conversation, although goodness knows I think we could go on talking about this all day. You, you've basically been a specialist at swimming upstream against the current. And I'm wondering what has been the hardest part of trying to push innovations in the face of resistance or sometimes apathy? And how have you kept yourself so motivated and so positive about change? Well, um, I guess let's start at the, at the end. There is so much work to do, and there are so many opportunities for people to really take charge of their lives. We've watched it in the income tax area, where too long ago, there, there was no turbo tax or other programs. People would have to pay a lot more money to go to H&R Block, where the person got you know a few hours training, and there they go. Yes. You'd much rather have a sophisticated um, uh, software program, maybe with a little unbundled help from your account. account. Okay, so that now has become part of the marketplace. The fact that we have, you know, I've always said, uh, and this is actually a, a true story. I remember going in the late 80s, Julie, to a California State Bar program that I was, uh, I was chair of the middle income committee at the time. And so we had a, a huge Saturday program, huge Saturday program. We advertised it everywhere. Five people. There were four on the panel and five in the audience. Okay. Yeah. In the audience, in the audience, one of them was a writer for the uh, Wall Street Journal, and it was the first page article that came out. So you never know. And uh, whenever, that's a great story. <laughs> and whenever you speak and I speak, I go for the one person afterwards who gets motivated um, and is committed. And now there's more than one. And to watch every, you know, states and provinces promulgating the rules. Now we're all teed up where we still have to move. And you said it in this conversation is, number one, informing the public of, the, of these rules and this opportunity and training lawyers. And if you look in the curricula of um, law schools, you won't see many unbundling courses in full or modules of them. And there will be. And there will be state bar and law society programs that will train the lawyers because the public demands it. Still so much work to be done. Yes, I think there is. There is, uh, what, so much work in so little time. <laughs> and we want to be able to do everything we can. Absolutely. And I hope that you and I are going to do a lot more of it together in the future as we have in the past. Thank you so much for this conversation, Woody. I really appreciate it. 
going Thank to be you. very Thank much you. enjoyed. Take Thank care now. You. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. a lot of great things that um, that you and Woody talked about in that conversation and it's so interesting to hear about kind of the roots of the unbundling movement and mm. even the SRL recognizing that as a, as a phenomenon and right because that steps. was the very beginning of yeah. unbundling was that recognition uh, in the committee that this was something that self-represented litigants needed. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting to hear the history, but it was uh, equally interesting to hear you and Woody talk about kind of the the present and the future of yeah. services for SRLs. And one of the things that you talked about was uh, the coaching model, which is something that yes. we've been very invested in here at the NSRLP over the last year or so and looking at ways to kind of promote that. And I really liked what Woody said about how coaching is even better than kind of traditional unbundling at empowering people to kind of take charge and understand what they need and what would best serve them in their in their case. Yeah, I, it fits so perfectly, in fact, with so much of the work that Woody's done in conflict resolution over the years, which has been very much committed to this idea that clients have to be the driving force. Uh, he has also been a real force in something called the International Client Counseling Competition, which is uh, an opportunity for law students to learn about interviewing and counseling. And again, a very client-centered model. So this is something I think for Woody that, that really in some ways epitomizes what's drawn him to, to some of these ideas. And I think that the project, we're already beginning to see people really adopting this nomenclature of coaching and beginning to absorb it into what clients might expect from lawyers. Mm -hmm. And we have a couple of ongoing projects, of course, here in which we're going to try to do more for self-represented litigants to inform them about coaching and how they might go to a lawyer and bargain for a coaching agreement. So one of the other things that you talked about with Woody was the issue of the cost of mm. unbundled legal services. And, you know, it's it's a little bit of a tricky area. Yep. Uh, understandably, lawyers mm -hmm. want to be paid, you know, um, top dollar for their, for their work and expertise. But I think the point you were getting at was that if it is $500 an hour, that is kind of out of reach still for, for, most, people. for most people. And, and I think there's another point here, which, you know, would he recognize when he talked about the market playing its own role here, which is that there are, even if you could theoretically find $500 an hour for a couple of hours, there are not very many people who think that anything is worth $500 an hour. Mm -hmm. Now, this is tough for lawyers to hear because they, and not just they, but we're talking about lawyers specifically today, are accustomed by a more senior point in their careers to charge 500 upwards an hour. And that certainly isn't, isn't, isn't uh, where it ends. And I think that there is some new thinking that needs to go on here. Certainly for people who are coming out of law school now and looking to hang out their own shingle, they're looking for ways to create a market for themselves. Coaching, unbundling, offer them that opportunity, but not at $500 an hour. And we're starting to see people charging rates of more like $150 or $200 an hour, which is still a pretty significant fee. 
But if you reduce your overhead, which many younger lawyers are beginning to do, you can work off a laptop, in fact, if you really want to, then this is also possible. And, and I think that this is going to continue to be the pattern, that we're going to see pressure from the market and from would-be clients to bring some of these hourly rates down. One of the last things that you and Woody talk about is this idea of his, and I thought it was so interesting that lawyers should have an ethical obligation when they are about to sign a contract with a client. An obli- for full representation. For full representation, yeah, yeah to let them know that uh, unbundling and coaching services like these exist and that that's an option. I mm. thought, wow, that's pretty, that's a neat idea. Yeah, I remember him presenting this Years ago, when people still thought unbundling was completely crazy. And until he talked about it in the interview, I'd forgotten all about it. But what a fantastic idea. I think that it would be something that law societies could look at, just as they now uh, oblige practitioners to tell their clients about the availability of mediation and dispute resolution Mm -hmm. services. They could also be obliged to tell their clients about the availability of unbundling and coaching, even if they don't do it themselves. In other news, the NSRLP has been very busy since you last heard from us in December, so we thought we'd fill you in on what we've been up to. First, we've continued to find and analyze cases for one of our current major projects, the Self-Represented Litigant Case Law Database. Five of our research assistants, under the direction of senior RA Lydia Imbronio, have been steadily working away, going progressively further back in time in Canadian case law, and they've started to see some very interesting trends. We released a preliminary report on this project late last year. We'll include that link on our podcast webpage. And we expect to release more reports, and hopefully the database itself, over the course of 2018. We expect the database will be hugely useful for lawyers, judges, lawmakers, and academics, and of course, SRLs. We've also been spending a lot of time putting together a large grant proposal seeking funding for a project very close to my heart. We're hoping to partner with two of our local public library systems to train librarians to offer information support and develop resources for family SRLs coming to the library. We hope that this program could eventually be expanded to other public libraries across the country. Cross your fingers for us. Our research around SRL issues continues with a new project looking at court transcripts. We hear a lot from SRLs about both the procedural difficulty and the cost of obtaining transcripts. Transcripts are important for SRLs because they often cannot remember due to anxiety or nerves or do not fully understand what was said in a hearing. We are beginning with a sweep through the provinces asking three basic questions. Can I get a transcript? How do I get a transcript? And what does it cost? We are already seeing lots of differences across the country in terms of accessibility and cost. We will eventually produce a guide for SRLs on obtaining transcripts in each province and territory, and a research report on our work. RAs Becky Robinette and Kayla Scaro are doing a great job with this important and timely research. Finally, while we haven't been putting out new episodes over the last little while, that doesn't mean we haven't been working hard on the podcast. We're very excited to announce that we now have a wonderful intern, Bronte Petrick, from the University of Windsor's Communications Department, working on making Jumping Off the Ivory Tower better and bigger. Bronte is working hard editing and producing our new episodes.
Meanwhile, Julie has been busy recording fantastic new interviews with some wonderful people in Hong Kong and Australia, where she's spending a large portion of the winter. In this second season of the podcast, you can look forward to more fantastic conversations. You'll hear from Sue Rice, who assisted Julie with her original SRL research and has some great stories from the early days of the NSRLP. Sherry McLennan speaks about My Law BC, which is a game changer for online legal services. Oncologist Dr. Jake McGee talks frankly with Julie about doctor-patient communication in our public health care system. And Benny Tai, founder of Hong Kong's Occupy movement agitating for universal suffrage, has a remarkable conversation with Julie about his experience negotiating democracy. But up next is one of our wonderful Windsor Law colleagues, Annika Smith, talking about Canada's response to the refugee crisis and what it's like to combine scholarship and activism. So tune in next week and all winter long for more great conversations on social justice issues.